We live in a society that loves to eat. And one of the things a lot of people enjoy is that they love to eat out. There's just something special about a home-cooked meal. I love eating at home. Uh, Leah's a great cook, and uh, so I, I love that. But a lot of us have you know, busy lives and just the availability around us of, of fast food and more casual restaurants has made us to where we just enjoy eating out, enjoying that experience. A lot of people like to try different restaurants and try different foods from different parts of the world and all those sorts of things. And it's amazing how the larger the city, it seems like the more places there are to, to eat out and different places to eat. I've been told that in... Manhattan, not all of New York City, but just in Manhattan, there are some 24,000 different places to eat. And I'm convinced that there are some people who have tried every last one of them. But the availability of restaurants has sort of taken away in our culture from the custom of having banquets. And of course, we, we have banquets from time to time, maybe at a, a wedding or something like that, or maybe at someone transitioning in life or retirement or graduation, maybe a business has a banquet. But for the most part, we can struggle with the concept of connecting what we call a banquet to what you so often see in the Bible called a banquet. And one reason is because when we think of a banquet, we typically think of one meal. Everybody arrives maybe early in the evening and enjoys a couple of courses. Maybe someone speaks or there's some entertainment and maybe we have some dessert and that's about it. Later in the evening, everybody goes home and that's the extent of the banquet. And that's certainly fine, but in Jesus' day and in some cultures even today, a banquet, especially maybe for a wedding or some other celebration, often lasted several days Typically, they lasted about a week, and if the uh, family had some money, they could sometimes last even longer than that, and here we are thinking we know how to throw a party. I mean, these things lasted a long time, and it's that setting, the setting of a banquet, that Jesus uses to teach one of his most powerful parables that he ever told. In reality, it's a parable about human nature and how we can let excuses get in the way of true devotion. This morning, using Luke chapter 14, verses 16 through 24, we're going to think about how we need to have no more excuses when it comes to our wholehearted devotion to the Lord. Now, you remember from our scripture reading a few moments ago, and I know it was a longer scripture reading, but I hope you understand why we took the time to read that entire text. But I hope you remember how this particular parable begins. In Luke 14, verses 16 through 17, We're told that there was a man who once gave a great banquet, and he invited many. And the time of the banquet came, and he sent his servant out to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. Now there's absolutely nothing out of the ordinary about that setting, about the beginning of that parable. You know as well as I do that the parables that Jesus told were based upon things the people knew. Whether they had ever been to a banquet like this or not, simply because of the culture in which they lived, they could picture this in their mind. It would be similar today as if someone got up for a sermon and began the sermon by talking about going to a theater or to an opera. Maybe you've never actually done that, but because of the culture in which we live, you can get a picture of that in your mind. Jesus uses something that whether they had actually experienced it or not, they have a picture in their mind. They know what he is talking about. But it's interesting that as the parable continues, there are excuses given. But before we look at the excuses that are given 
as to why people would not come to this great banquet, I want you to notice what prompted Jesus to tell the parable. It's found back up in verse 15, excuse me, where someone said to Jesus, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Here is someone who sees the kingdom or sees the kingdom coming, and he says, It's all good. It's all like a banquet. You would be blessed to be there and to eat bread. No one would ever not want to go. No one would ever make excuses to avoid being in the kingdom. The Jews of the days of Christ and before had the idea that the Messiah would come and would look like royalty, act like royalty, set up an earthly kingdom, drive out the Romans and all those sorts of things. He would would be their, their deliverer, but also he would be one who absolutely looked like the part in their mind. And so if he is that king, that royal one, and he invites you to dinner, he invites you to a banquet, who would ever turn that invitation down? And then Jesus came, and yes, he is a king, but in their minds, he didn't look the part. He was a fairly normal person. You wouldn't have picked him out by the way he looked. Isaiah had prophesied that he didn't have any form or comeliness that we should be drawn to him. In other words, he wouldn't look any different than anybody else. He was a teacher. He met people from rich to poor. He didn't fit in with their ideal vision of a Messiah. And so when he began talking about a kingdom, and the idea was a spiritual kingdom, it became easy for some to begin to give excuses. I'm not going to that kingdom. I'm not going to be a part of that kingdom. Or in the words of the parable, I'm not going to the banquet. What I want to think about with you this morning for a few moments is, are the excuses that are given. There are three given in the parable itself. And I want us to see if there's anything we can take away. We see excuses for what they are and see if they sometimes can ring true of of us, maybe who have not become Christians, or maybe even for those of us who are Christians, as to why at times we don't give full and wholehearted devotion to the Lord. The first excuse that's given we'll call the excuse of perceived necessities. Now, this excuse kind of baffles me a little bit. It's also the one that when I was studying for this lesson, I kind of came across the the widest uh, variance as to what people say exactly is going on. But considering the other excuses given, the ones we'll stay in a moment, what I think Jesus has in mind here is someone who has has a little bit of money and uses the excuse, again, of what we're calling perceived necessities. Notice what the excuse is given in verse 18. I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Now there are different interpretations of that excuse, but I personally agree with H. Leo Bowles and others who suggested that what Jesus had in mind and what the listeners would have heard in his day and time was someone who had a certain level of wealth. In English history, for example, you might have heard of the landed gentry. Maybe that's kind of the concept here. Someone who has their wealth tied up in the land, vineyards and farms and all those sorts of things. Here's a man who uses the land to build wealth. But he also seems to be at least a little bit of what we might call a wheeler and dealer. After all, he had bought a field and he hadn't even seen it yet. And so he's going out to see this field. As a man who holds his business, his property, his wealth in the land, it was a major risk to purchase any land, much less land to be cultivated or used for specific purposes that he had never seen before. But he had done so. And so now it becomes a necessity to go out and survey or see the land. That's why we're calling this a perceived necessity. 
What made this necessary in the mind of this person was simply that now I've made the purchase and so now I must go out and see it. It wasn't necessary before the purchase was made. And so the business side begins to drive him and consume him at the time. He, here he has an absolutely amazing opportunity to go to a banquet that's described in the parable as a great banquet. But he turns it down because of what is now a necessity in his life to go see or survey this land. How many of us or how many of our world make excuses to either come to Christ or to give ourselves wholeheartedly to the Lord that we would call necessities, but when we're truly honest, they're only necessities of our own making. For for example, we are required in Scripture to to work and to make money. God demands that His people not be lazy or slothful. That's condemned in the Old Testament, being lazy is. But as we make some money, we build some things for ourselves, we, we buy more and we build more, and then we find it necessary to spend more time and energy and money in order simply to keep up a lifestyle that if we're not honest, or if we are honest, excuse me, is not a necessary at all. I'm not talking about working to feed our family. God requires us to do that. But how many of us work absolutely just crazy long hours just so we can afford more and more and more? It's that type of thing that we begin to see as necessary when it's a necessity only of our own making. And all the while, we can be missing an opportunity to be completely devoted to the work of the Lord. We're putting all this energy into stuff and things instead of what really is necessary. I'm not trying to shame any one of us. I'm trying to make us all think. What I'm saying is we can begin to have an excuse just like this first individual where we set up necessities that aren't really necessities. And so the excuse is of a perceived necessity. Then there is the excuse given of a perceived convenience. The second person makes a statement that sounds normal, but then when you think about it, it can kind of cause you to, to scratch your head a little bit. He says in verse 19, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Some translations, by the way, instead of examine, use words like prove or test. And at first, when you read that, that sounds perfectly normal. If you've ever worked with animals, especially larger animals, you really need to examine them or to test them to make sure that they're healthy, to make sure they're up to the task that you are purchasing them for and all those sorts of things. And this man had bought five yoke of oxen. In other words, five teams. A yoke, of course, being the implement mostly in that day made of wood to put two animals together so they work together as a team and accomplish more in the fields or wherever the task had to be done. It would have taken two to plow a field or to move things. And so he's bought five teams or five sets. And so this excuse seems absolutely normal. I've got to go examine them, make sure that they are up to the task that I've purchased them for. But think about that just for a second. Could that have not have waited a day or two? The purchase had already been made. He did not say... I'm going to purchase five oxen, and I need to go look at them. He said, I have purchased five team of oxen or five yoke of oxen, and now I need to go examine them or prove them or test them. Was a day or two going to this banquet going to make any difference? The purchase had already been made. 
And so the excuse becomes one of perceived convenience. It seemed more convenient in the moment to go ahead and examine or to prove or to test these animals instead of, in his mind, wasting some time attending to this banquet. It is utterly tragic how many people wait until they think things are just right, just so, in order to come to Christ, in order to give themselves wholeheartedly in His service. We make up all kinds of excuses of how it's just not the right time in our life. It's just not the right set of circumstances. Things just aren't right with my life. Sometimes you might say things just aren't right even at the church. And so it becomes perceived convenience. I want to say something that I hope you'll listen all the way through because the first thing I'm going to say may sound almost a counter-argument to the Scriptures, but I hope you'll listen to me all the way through. If you are ever going to be truly and deeply and wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord, it's never going to be convenient. Now, before you shut your ears off, here's what I mean. Being a wholehearted Christian, a devoted Christian, means... I need to change some things, and change is never convenient. It's never easy. That's that's all I'm saying. It's far easier to just roll through life and just kind of see how things go and make up some long list of when this happens and when that happens and when that happens, then I'll do it. And the list only grows longer and longer and longer as time passes. As we talk about convenience, many of you are probably thinking of Paul as he stood before Felix in the New Testament. Near the end of Acts chapter 24, after Paul had given a very bold but very loving defense of the gospel, this leader named Felix was alarmed. And the Bible tells us in Acts 24 and verse 25, to Paul he said, Go away for the present, and when I get an opportunity, I will summon you. But just two verses later, Acts 24 and verse 27, we're told that two whole years had passed, and Felix simply left Paul in prison. It seems that that opportunity, or some translations have that convenient time, just didn't, just didn't come. But more properly, Felix probably simply didn't look for the opportunity or the convenient time. And so he used the convenience of, I'll, I just need opportunity, as an excuse. There are many today who say that I'm going to give myself wholeheartedly to the Lord when... When the kids grow up and are gone because that's going to free up some time. Or when I retire and that way I don't have the demands of a job. That's when I'll fully give myself to the devotion of the Lord. But all along difficulties arise. There are demands in the job. Sometimes our health doesn't stay the way we'd like for it to. Sometimes there are demands of now keeping up with grandchildren and all sorts of things. And sometimes we have to work longer than we thought we would. And all those things happen. If we are simply waiting for a convenient time, folks will never find it. Instead, when you drop the excuses and come to the feast now, the man of perceived convenience, then there is the excuse of a poor relationship. This last excuse is the one that probably seems the most logical, at least on its face. It's given by a man in verse 20 who simply says, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Now, on the face, that seems like a perfect excuse. This is a man that we would think we should celebrate. He's married. He's now taking responsibility. He's being a man. He's he's going to make certain he's with his wife and all those things. Nothing's going to draw him away from devotion to his wife. What could possibly be wrong with that? What could possibly make this an excuse in this parable by Jesus? We're calling an excuse a poor relationship. Why would we say that? 
because of what the banquet in this parable represents. Remember that the banquet in the parable represents the kingdom, the kingdom of God. Remember the saying that prompted this whole parable all the way back up in verse 15. Blessed is the one who eats bread in the kingdom of God. And then Jesus begins the parable about the banquet. So here is a man who has married a wife, and she's taking him away from the banquet. She is drawing him further from the kingdom of God. But did you also notice something that's missing in this third excuse? The first two men, verse 18 and verse 19, both of them gave their excuse, but then at least had the politeness, the manners to say, please have me excused. But this third man doesn't do that, does he? He simply makes a statement, I've married a wife, and then he bluntly just states, I cannot come. That there's no humility in this asking for permission. Now, some have stated that the people listening to Jesus on that day would in their mind have gone back to the Old Testament law, the book of Deuteronomy, where there was this idea of if, if a man of war married a wife, he had a year off of duty. He didn't have to go to war for a year. But there's, there's a hole in that argument, and that's simply this. The king wasn't holding a war. He was holding a banquet. You see, all a man was excused from, from the Old Testament law, was going out to war for a year. He wasn't excused from living for a year, but simply the charge of the army going out to war for a year. Here was a man who was invited to a banquet given by a great man, and yet something is drawing him away. In the New Testament, Paul warned that evil company corrupts good morals, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 33. Now, I'm fully aware that in the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, The evil that's in mind there are those who would deny the resurrection, specifically the resurrection of Christ and the promise of our own resurrection. But the principle of evil company or companions corrupt good morals continues to be true. And that helps us see why it is so vital who we choose for our closest earthly relationships. For teens and for preteens, it is vital that you choose people not just to go to church, but those who truly have God first in their lives as your closest friends. Because those are the ones you will lean on when times are are not good. For those of us who, who are not married and thinking of who we might marry, it is absolutely the number one priority that our question should be, will this person draw me closer to the kingdom of God or will they make it more difficult to be faithful to the Lord? That's not to say we should never be around those who are not Christians. We must be around those who are not Christians if we're going to influence them for good and for right and win them to the Lord. But our closest friendships, those who we hold the dearest, those need to be people who are pushing us closer to the great banquet that Christ has for us, not causing us to offer excuses as to why we won't attend. And so it's the excuse of a poor relationship. Those who originally heard this parable from Jesus would have gotten the point But if they hadn't got the point through the excuses, they would have especially gotten the point near the end as he drew the parable to a close. After all these excuses are given, the master in the parable is angry, but he still wants to hold the feast. Everything is ready for it. And he wanted the banquet hall to be filled. And so he tells that servant in verse 21, go out quickly 
into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And then all those came and there was still room in the hall, the banquet hall. And so he said in verse 23, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that the house or the hall may be filled. And then the master added words that are absolutely chilling when you stop and think about them. He said, for I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my banquet. Those who heard Jesus give the parable originally were probably thinking, did he just say what I think he said? Consider for a moment what Jesus had just said. In the parable, here was a man who had enough money to go purchase land without even seeing it. He was another who had enough of business acumen and wealth to buy ten oxen at one time. He was somebody else who had just enjoyed getting married and felt powerful enough that he could tell this master, I'm just not going to come to your feast. These were people that in their eyes would have been the absolute cream of the crop of their society. But the master says in the parable, they are not going to come. Instead, those who have been looked down upon, crippled, those who live out in the lanes, the highways, those sorts of things, the poor, those are the ones who were going to fill this hall for this great banquet. The Jews who were listening to Jesus give this parable originally had to be wondering, is what I'm hearing him say really what he's saying? Is Jesus saying that those who were powerful in their religious society really would not come to this feast? Would the poor, would the outcast, would even, dare I say it, the Gentiles Would they be part of what he's talking about? Absolutely. And the reason is very simple. They would accept the invitation. No excuses given. I said something similar to this last week, and I wanted to preach these two sermons back to back, in part to emphasize the point But also to let you know, I'm not going to say this every single week as we look to the words of Jesus. Part of what Jesus is reminding us of is simply the idea we talked about last week. That I can look the part. I can look religious. And people even around can go, wow, that is someone who is religious. That is someone who has it all together. But all the while, deep down in my heart, I can be pushing away from wholehearted devotion because it means I have to do things or hold attitudes that I'm not really willing to hold or to have. And how many of us are giving very similar excuses to those in this parable to avoid complete and total devotion to God? Do you remember in his ministry, Christ was asked, what's the greatest commandment of them all? And he didn't give a partial answer. He didn't say give God he didn't say give God your best. That's not what he said. He said the greatest commandment of them all is to love God with all with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength and then to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus was saying in that famous teaching no more excuses. And he brings that over to this parable. Even excuses that sound normal Even excuses that society would go, yeah, that makes perfect sense. I I can see why. I I can see why you kind of backed off a little bit. And, 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 you know, yeah, business comes first. Family comes first. Folks, it's time that there are no 
more excuses that God comes first. And so, all things are ready. Who will come to the feast? It's not always the one who looks the part, as we might think they should look. You know who it is? It's the one who sees this book, reads this book, and says, no excuses. I'm following this book. That's what it is. No matter what my family history might be, they've, they've been in this religion forever, but it doesn't agree with this word. No excuses. God comes first. I've got a friend, and if I, if I give my life to Christ fully and, and make sure I'm standing up for I'm, I'm going to lose this friendship. I'm going to lose this boyfriend. I'm going to lose this girl. No more excuses. I've got an account at work. In fact, it's the largest account I've got. And if I really am the person of integrity that this book tells me to be, I'm going to lose that. No more excuses. All things are ready. Who will come to the feast? As together we stand, as we sing, to encourage you.